everyone. This is Speaking of Shakespeare, a series of conversations about things Shakespearean, with a focus on new digital technology and teaching and research, and also about developments in Shakespearean performance and education across the globe. I'm Thomas Dabbs, recording today from Aoyama Gakuin University in central Tokyo. This series is funded by a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science called Kakenhi. And this organization thankfully includes support for research into humanities. Today is September 28, 2020, and we will be speaking with Professor Sarah Olive of the University of York on many subjects, but with a focus on Shakespearean education across the globe and during a pandemic. Sarah was born in the UK and moved to Australia as a teenager. She majored in English at the University of Adelaide before completing her doctoral work at the University of Cambridge. She also took a second degree in Shakespearean studies at the Shakespeare Institute, University of Birmingham, where she now contributes to their programs as a visiting lecturer. Good morning, Sarah, it's morning for you. <laughs> morning, Tom. <laughs> it's not morning for me. It's <laughs> and for anyone uh, listening, I'm in Tokyo, and Sarah, you're in York. Are you in York now? Or? I am actually in Stratford-upon-Avon, so that's a lot more relevant for Excellent. what we're talking about. Yes, there we are. How are things going these days? They are going, um, well, we are just about to start term. So shortly, I'll start a weekly commute that I do between Stratford-upon-Avon and York, and we will be doing some campus teaching and a lot of online teaching. A lot of online teaching. Uh, in the spring semester, did you do online teaching? Have you done it before? Um, we had almost finished actually um because at least in the uk a lot of universities um particularly places like york and birmingham tend not to do a lot of teaching in the summer term it's kind of a revision or kind of a preparation for assignment sort of term so this is really going to be my first introduction to it well, welcome, because we, of course, you know the uh, Japan semester system is yeah. almost um, completely reversed from anywhere else, and we've been teaching online already for our spring semester, uh, so all of us are seasoned veterans, uh, and as such, <laughs> maybe many of us are not looking forward to the coming term. We're on about the same schedule for fall term. We've already begun, and you haven't begun yet, right? No, I mean, maybe some of the, um, so I guess in the UK higher education system, we kind of have the split of like, uh, kind of research intensive universities and the teaching intensive universities and the teaching intensive ones have probably gone back already. And then these kind of traditional, or I guess, I don't want to say Ivy League exactly, but that kind of um, notion are maybe hanging on and we just start at the start of October. Yeah, it's sort of the same in the States, that the more um, well-received the university is, that uh, the later they start. <laughs> the less teaching you do, the, the less, less teaching you do. The need. less teaching you do, and uh, that's just the way it is. So you will be, and you will be doing some face-to-face, -face, like tutorials, is that right? Or smaller Yeah, courses, that's... Yeah. 
That's absolutely right. So I think York is, has some kind of rule like 10 students on campus, uh, sorry, in a room, you know, for maybe a small group session. So all of our big modules have been broken up. We will yeah. kind of repeat uh, tutorials for as many groups as necessary. And I'm quite lucky. English and education, we've got an intimate group, so I don't yeah. have to repeat too many times. Yeah some good faculty there. You have good colleagues. I, um, I know some of the names. Uh, if I don't know people personally, I know some, several of the people uh, by uh, reputation. Uh, and in particular, one guy named Jowett. Ah, uh, 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 that guy. <laughs> Uh, who did some did some work with my advisor uh, when I was in graduate school, and uh, my advisor, yeah, my advisor wasn't the easiest guy in the world to work with. He he became more happy, uh, and uh, and he was extremely good. But uh, that's uh, maybe we can talk about that later. And it's 2020, the year of the plague, and of course that has a Shakespearean connection, and we will make that. And uh, what I wanted to do in these talks is maybe avoid things that are extremely topical, uh, particularly yeah. in, in politics. Those things that I don't remember from a year ago that made me angry on the 28th a year ago. Yeah. But anything that a year from now will still have some resonance, I think, is fair game uh, for any of our conversations. And we can also talk about contemporary uh, things that are going on, which you do quite a lot. Now, I've been looking at your credentials and your work, and I'm convinced that there are two, maybe three Sarah Olives out there. I, <laughs> I don't know how anyone can be so productive in so many areas. You, you have two or, or three, arguably three, maybe more academic specialties, and you also are very active in the grant um, work for various grants and tell us what you're doing now and what is will be, be doing uh, what you well you were on holiday but what have you been doing recently yeah. and in the near, <laughs> near future well Sarah Olive number one uh, spent her summer pretty much putting in grant applications as you mentioned so at least in the UK system it's something that are, mm, we call them hires and betters so our senior member of staff uh, would be kind of checking on our productivity in that way and I find it's quite useful to to bunch up all those funding applications together and kind of spend a chunk of time on them because their very nature you tend to Oh, kind of um, evolve an idea and then maybe you shoot off like three different applications around that. So for me, I was looking at, um, I'm interested a little bit like this uh, project that you've got going in how people are teaching Shakespeare in the pandemic. So that's um, one thing I would like to get some funding on. I'm still trying on that score so far, yeah. but certainly to go around the world and kind of be asking so how is the pandemic affecting your teaching of Shakespeare? Some countries, you know, it's been fairly minimal. So I have a colleague in Vietnam who said, well, maybe there were two sessions where I was doing some, I wanted to do some drama. I wanted to get the students on their feet, um, moving around and performing Shakespeare. And that was out. Mm -hmm. But he has since been able to resume all of that active methods work that he would normally do with Shakespeare. So it kind of made me aware that there's a lot of variation and I really want to find a way to capture that, even if it's just towards something like an issue of teaching Shakespeare magazine to have different people saying, 
well, it didn't affect me much or it completely wiped out my optional module, you know, that kind of variety. Yeah. Uh, what, what I've experienced so far is that, uh, number one, there were, uh, there were some, it, what is this? It's sort of like Kubler-Ross's uh, stages of death. <laughs> where you go from one state yeah. to another, you know, denial and then yeah. uh, anger. I'm not sure what order it goes into. And what this is, it, it, it doesn't lead to death. It, it leads to uh, it, something that's okay in the end. And, but the first, the first stage is confusion. And uh, I don't know what sort of LMS uh, you're working on online. Uh, what, what, what are you using uh, for Oh, this is like a online learning environment, like a Blackboard or a, that sort of thing. Uh -huh. Yeah, um, I mean, York uses Blackboard and um, it's pretty flexible. You seem to be able to kind of upload or embed or do all of those sorts of things you want to, to kind yeah. of keep things nice and multimodal and have audio and have visual and have material that you produce and also share you know, obviously things like videos. Yeah. Um, we were faced with, we have rather long class sessions that go an hour and a half. questions, some study questions that they could do during the class time, stick around, uh, and they come in. And at first, it didn't work that well. And some of the forms that I set up for them to submit, I was using Google Classrooms, didn't work. And so we had that confusion. That came. But after a while, it sort of got into a little bit of a routine, just like any class. And, uh, uh, and in some ways, I felt like I connected with the students maybe a little better. Uh, because I, I normally don't put up little week-to-week -week study questions. And so, you know, they can get sort of lazy during the middle of the term, and so can their professor, uh, particularly as it starts getting hot in the, uh, in, in the Tokyo summer. And so things uh, evened out. And there, I would just say that there, there are some very positive things that happened, and they, they will for you, too. I'm, so, I'm, so I'm really excited for it in some ways. So we've been briefed very similarly to you. We would normally, um, at least in the education department at York, we actually tend not to do the traditional English department style thing of like a one hour lecture followed by 50 minute tutorials. Mm -hmm. We do a two hour seminar normally and mm -hmm that's a mix of whatever you make it as a lecturer. So for me, it's normally I talk a bit and then we throw it over to group activities. And it's been reasonably easy to replicate that, at least as far as I can tell. You know, obviously I haven't had the feedback yet because the classes, we've not kind of undertaken them, but to record short videos. And I've really enjoyed doing things like, I think when you work on things like Shakespeare and performance, uh, one of the things I did was to take the Helen Mirren Tempest, where mm -hmm. she becomes a female prosperer rather than the male Prospero yeah. wizard character. Yeah. Yeah. And to record, well, to play that using screen share, but kind of pausing it where I wanted to bring out a scene or to ask students a question yeah. or even just something as simple as like glossing a word yeah. that they use or a, a phrase. So I really enjoyed that facility to actually, 
watch lots of um, productions that I enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like my classes sat there with me as, as my friends with the popcorn and the, yeah. you know, yeah. we're eating and we're chatting and okay, yeah. I'm not yet getting the bit where they throw things back at me and say, <laughs> what does that mean? Or yeah. you explain this, but actually the thing we're struggling with is the use of thou or something like that. So yeah. That's been enjoyable. And then another tool that we're going to be using is um, Padlet. I don't know if you've come across it. I think it's partly freely available online. And then there's kind of, as always, a kind of professional subscription thing. Yeah. Um, and I have certainly set those up for a lot of my modules in order to gather that kind of um, question and answer and discussion. Yeah. Um, side of things so i'm interested to see how that gets used obviously at the moment i've just done the setup i don't know what the response will be like i do like what looks like the potential for students to instead of maybe if you're feeling particularly shy perhaps rather than writing out like a mini essay i think the facility to say well here are some relevant links I found. What about these? Mm -hmm. Or um, here are some stills from this production that really illuminate the ideas of the Tempest or some mm -hmm. of the themes and to throw those up. I hope that that might invite some of those quieter students to participate. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in Japan, almost all of my students are the quieter type. And uh, what I was very thrilled with in our, we have a seminar, uh, an undergraduate and graduate seminar. And right off the bat, the graduate seminar, they're on and their faces are in and they get to know each other. And they're just a few kids in that class. Uh, not kids, really. They're young adults, uh, full adults because they're graduates. But um uh, in my undergraduate class, they were a little shy at first, and then there were 12 students, everyone came on. And now I can joke with them, and they can do their own presentations, and I can do, like you're saying, we can do multimedia uh, much more effectively. I, I am looking forward to being back in the classroom and face-to-face, -face, but in the interim, there's some things that have worked a bit better that uh, have been pleasant surprises, and there have been some failures. You know, see old movie. If you remember the old Mel, Mel Gibson, you have some Australian experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the year of living dangerously. I just call this the, the year of teaching imperfectly. And, you know, <laughs> why not? And, and I'm finding that maybe more affirming than anything that lowering expectations to realistic degrees mm -hmm. has, giving, has given me more joy. And I think the students play off of that, too when they see something work uh, in a new mm. learning environment. Uh, so uh, that's, that's what's to be expected. And, that, and I'm, I know that you will just do splendidly. Uh, you, you, have, <laughs> uh, you connect with people so well. Well, I should say, I mean, one of the great um, benefits of having friends in Japan for me has been actually watching, um, you know, through media like Facebook, my friends in Japan trying out different teaching techniques and, you know, being, I mean, I feel awful in a way you guys were thrown right at the forefront of the pandemic, like you say, into your academic year. That's how it, it started really in Japan. But it's been incredibly instructive for those of us who've been on a kind of summer vacation at the moment, just to see like, ah, oh, people developing pedagogies around, you know, camera on, camera off or whatever else. 
it's really someone had to go first and it's been really beneficial for those of us who didn't have to go first to kind of pick up those tips and also even if it's something like hearing about the kind of added fatigue that you should expect to feel after teaching online those sorts of things and the students also and uh and that sort of thing and they're also varying degrees now we have had uh stories and uh, this doesn't have anything to do with my university but of course we're in contact with people all around tokyo and japan uh but some professors have taken the opportunity just maybe to up uh, PDFs and say, read them and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And there, there have been some uh, student complaints. I haven't heard of any in our institution. I think we've done extremely well, particularly in our faculty, because we just have some really good people. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to say me excluded, because I have to show a, a proper degree of humility. I'm in, I'm in Tokyo. I'm in a Japanese culture. Uh, but we did Romeo and Juliet in the seminar. And I had to, we have an open campus every year and we had to have an online open campus. So I had to do a little thing for high schoolers and I figured out how to do subtitles. And I talked about iambic pentameter, which uh, fascinates my students. I, I think in, when I taught this back in the States years ago, that was the cue to just fall into a coma in, in class. When I start talking about meter and rhyme, and, the, uh, you know, it is sort of stereotypical that J- Japanese students like to see that structure, uh, typically, and yeah. particularly the best students. So I can use that little video. I can reuse these things. So, uh, and also, I've had to structure classes far better than I did before. And that's, I feel like I should have done this 20 years ago. I agree on that point that it's been um, kind of revelatory for me in terms of normally I would approach a class by grabbing a pile of books out of my office and grabbing some lecture notes that I've used for a long time that kind of, they tend to be bullet points about what I want to talk on and maybe one or two specific uh, bits of information or quotations that I want to use as a springboard to arrange the class around. And I realized that without that um, physical presence and without necessarily being able to read students' faces and emotions and energy levels, I need to scale back a lot and to be, to take people's hands much more and to guide them like we're going to do this first. So I find in my online teaching, I've been using every item that I put up there on the, the virtual learning environment I tried to kind of have it noun read as well to make it more exciting. You know, if you kind of post, this is a PDF from so-and-so's article in Shakespeare's survey. But if you say like, read this, explore this, discover this, I think there's, it motivates you as well as the students. And it also makes very clear what you're expecting of people and what it is you're asking them to do. So it's been great for me to, to pair back what I do and also to kind of force me to sequence it in a way that I I normally would kind of, we'll just see where the students want to go and where the energy's at in the room, but actually to force me to create actually much more logical (laughs) sequence than I would perhaps like, but it's nonetheless been a really good exercise. And you're training anytime. Now, I I know that you you did a work in education, uh, humanities education at Cambridge, and then you also did work at the uh, 
Shakespeare Institute uh, connected with Birmingham, mm -hmm. and uh, that's located in Stratford. And uh, so, in in that uh, in that training, uh, what sorts of things would you say would be the things that you've learned, and of course, keeping up with your field, that you see old, um, well, boomers like me, not uh, not adapting to, and and not and being resistant. You know, I I come from. I, I don't even want to tell you how sexist the first ac um, academic uh, what master's program I, I was in. I did a master's degree at a fairly prestigious place that I won't mention now. They've changed completely, but there were five men. Two of them. Uh, told me personally they didn't take women seriously as scholars that's that's how old I am and that's where we're coming from you know and so I'm also coming from a pedagogical environment unfortunately I had very progressive teachers in the next program I was in and we were taught more process oriented learning more um, you know all, all the things decentering yourself as a teacher not just talking to the students and expecting them to you know uh, write down everything you say, but what sort of things do you think in the past five years or so may have come up that uh, that professors of you know of a certain age should should pay attention to and and adapt to? Wow, I mean that's a great question. I actually think some of my more senior colleagues and um, professors actually have been the ones who push me a little harder in some ways. I don't know, maybe, maybe there's an ability once you get a bit past your PhD to look quite broadly at what's happening in higher education. So, um, but what developments? I mean, I am lucky to be in a department where I don't think there's resistance to this at all, but I am particularly interested in things like decolonizing the curriculum. Um, and maybe that comes from having some experience across the world or in various places. So doing research in Australia, doing some research in Japan and Vietnam and Hong Kong. Um, so I think for me, particularly teaching English literature, right? I have had to maybe get past my own teaching, which happened in Australia. It did include um, quite a lot of American writing, some South African writing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of where else. We didn't tend to have very much from Asia or the subcontinent particularly. So for me, it's been um, kind of moving away from my own, particularly at school, a kind of great traditions, a leave aside, like you will do the Brontes and you will do Austin. I mean, I'm lucky that those are women writers featured fairly prominently. Mm -hmm. But I think my, I feel like my early encounters with English were probably pretty choked up around Shakespeare and 19th century fiction. And you can see that if you look at the national curriculum for English, there is a lot of emphasis on that, plus maybe World War One poetry. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's been a case of having to say, well, I'm lucky that my own kind of, um, personal reading i enjoy reading more widely i've really really enjoyed um engaging engaging with a lot of popular japanese writers um like kirino natsuo um maybe popular genres as well so she writes a lot of kind of detective or murder fiction um and then kind of asking myself what out of those things that i've read more recently and from a very wide range of writers do i want to 
put there on the curriculum. And sometimes it is a relation to Shakespeare, you know, the way that people will appropriate Shakespeare. And oh, there's always, always a relation. <laughs> I've never failed to make the connection because all these people read Shakespeare almost to the person. I, don't, I, I think it would, you could almost say 100% uh, are influenced in some way. And I noticed that you have a recent article on Cleopatra and Anne Rice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> years ago, one of my favorite that just sit down and read novelists, the uh, yeah. interview with the vampire and so forth. Yeah. Haven't read the mummy or the, what's the other title? To, oh, this Ramsey's the damned. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I haven't done those, but, uh, and I haven't gotten through all of your paper there, but that's the sort of thing you are doing. You're, you're linking popular culture with Shakespearean influences and yeah. not just genre wise, but in, in much more of what, um, micro uh microscopic ways uh, that uh examine uh what the history of consciousness uh that appears <laughs> i love that i'm gonna take that and use that as one of the keywords maybe you know when uh for example academic journals ask you provide six keywords maybe i'll just add in there history of consciousness I but yeah that, that was <laughs> it means anything <laughs> Well, I reckon it will show up in some, you know, we'll get the philosophers reading our papers if we do that. But yeah, it was certainly something I was working on over summer was expanding. So apart from Sarah, number one was busy doing research bids. Sarah, number two was busy. I didn't do, I did one, one or two bits of fresh writing this summer, but a lot of the time it's reviewing things that are about to come out. You're looking at the proofs of them. And uh, yeah, I had not the Anne Rice article, but a similar chapter that I've been working on in relation to Romeo and Juliet in, in young adult vampire fiction that mm. has been an absolute joy to me to read. And I'm sure that many of your students are familiar with Stephanie Mayer and with the Twilight Saga, oh, whether yeah. they've read the books or whether you've seen the films. I think people have a lot of consciousness of that. Yeah. Um, but also looking at some lesser known, there are some brilliant vampire fictions by um, other authors like Stacey Jay, set in California, for example, set among vampires among the vineyards. This is really the best possible combination of things for me. Um, so I was, I'm particularly interested in the way that a lot of those young adult novels with vampires and with Shakespeare do a lot of work around consent actually and gendered violence and um, uh. kind of educating young people about relationships which to me in the UK we have some form of like relationships education in in many schools um, if yeah. not most schools. Yeah. I know in the US it's perhaps a little bit more politically febrile about what can be covered in classes around that, what kind of um, sex and relationships education is appropriate. But I really thought these novels that are aimed at young people, they're not primarily meant to be didactic. They're not like mm -mm. the novels that I was given to read about that when I was at school and we were set, I'm trying to remember which American young adult author it is now that we were set to be like, this woman will teach you about how to have your first boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it might be. These are primarily like pleasure and leisure reading, but they managed to kind of do something actually really feminist around um, modeling strong female characters who say, 
stop now, that's enough. Or um, I don't think you should be hitting that guy over there. Um, and they do some really interesting things for young people about, about how to have conversations about your relationships or how to have conversations about violence. Um, and I, I, it just fascinates me that you can use Shakespeare to do that kind of work. Yes, you can. And uh, it comes up all the time in my classes. Now, I must say two things. Number one, in the United States, the key word is United States. Every, <laughs> right. every state, and sometimes you can break it down to counties, have different boards of education. And so you don't get the national consolidation that you would get in the UK, and uh, that you would have a a stronger centralized board. And in yeah. fact, people in the States very much resist on both sides, throughout the political spectrum, they resist um, being told on a national level what to do. There's, there's a lot of resistance. And there are a lot of little issues that come up. Uh, for instance, whether the uh, N word is used in a particular text by a, a, you know, a, a character who is not an admirable character, or whether it comes up in a movie and so forth. Uh, I've recently for an introductory class that had to teach Flannery O'Connor, who's just brilliant, just brilliant all the way through. And good man is hard to find. There's just no better way to introduce a student to literature. But the N-word is in there from a very bad character. Uh, and also, you know, other things that, that pop up. And what has fascinated me is that it never has come up. I think in Arizona, there was a move against the Tempest when someone in, from a very conservative background said, oh, they're using that to teach America is a col colonial and Europe is colonial and they're doing this and we need, and I'm going, Powell, have you ever read The Tempest? You know, like there, there are a lot of things you can do with The Tempest and, uh, and there is colonialism. I mean, it's flat out uh, a guy taking over an island and people there and all of that is there. Um, but uh, for instance, the beginning of The Tempest, uh, I almost did a paper on Thomas Bodler's uh, Bodlerization. Listen, we make fun of this guy, but and and a lot of people don't know his, you know the activity his wife had in it, you know the the role yeah. that his wife played in that, which is a little mysterious, but uh, it was big. <clears throat> but that made Shakespeare readable at home, and if you read the first few lines of the Tempest, and they're talk they're comparing the storm with a strumpet and other elements of uh, the strumpet's anatomy, it really isn't something I would feel comfortable teaching to a 15 year old, you know, in a, in a mixed setting. It's, it's a, and they, they cut it out. And it, as a result made popularized Shakespeare, made it appropriate for Victorian mm. home reading, you know, for the father to read to the students. But, uh, there's so many places, the beginning of Romeo and Juliet with those two worthless, yep. worthless guys with, yeah, with Samson, Samson and Gregory talking about, okay. you know, it gets down to genitalia and rape and anything, you know, ha ha ha, locker room conversation. And of course, in Japan, I can't get around it because these, these kids, we go line to line sometimes and I have to explain Cole Carey and Collier, Maidenhead, and thrusting the, the, the maiden against the wall, mm -hmm, that sort mm -hmm. of stuff, or, you know, very violent stuff. And they're okay. They, they, they're okay. There's, of course, I'm in college. Um, so um, I guess what I'm saying is I'm happy that the, the censors have not gotten back around to Shakespeare. Yeah. 
and but there is stuff in there that is very difficult to uh, cover. Yeah, and that's that. What's interesting in what you're saying is that it's um. So, for example, I think in the UK, people often, when they want to talk about those difficult things to teach in Shakespeare, they'll often mention maybe some of the, I don't know, obscure or more difficult or problem plays, things like measure for measure, um, you know, whether you should sleep with someone, save your brother's life against your will, those kind of things. But actually, it's really interesting. You mentioned Romeo and Juliet. So it can be in the plays that we think are the most suitable plays to introduce young people to Shakespeare. And I think that absolutely fascinates me, uh, the way that people make judgments about things. So, uh, oh, Romeo and Juliet, that's fine for, for, you know, maybe young adolescents to read, or even Midsummer Night's Dream, where you've got a premise around somebody, you know, in Athens, I shouldn't say somebody, a young woman being told like, you need to marry this guy. This, uh, this is based, you know, this kind of uh, like, you need to do this with a family. This is what we've said. This or, is die. or die, or die, or die. Or go to a nunnery, which they didn't have in ancient Athens, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, which yeah, is maybe cool. some kind of temple or some kind of group of, yeah. Uh, the the horror of living your life without a man, without a man to be attached to, comes up over and over again in Shakespeare. And that can be turned. But that was a real thing. Uh, that was a real thing. Yeah. And, and I just think the way that people yeah. focus on things like, oh, Midsummer Night's Dream, we can teach that in primary schools uh, because it's got fairies. It does. And I'm, you can, as you mentioned, you can edit a Shakespeare play in, in any way that you need to, to use with young people or to use with perhaps groups with particular beliefs or particular preferences for whether you have polite discourse or whether you see Shakespeare as someone who's messy and rude and violent and all of those sorts of things. But yeah, it does kind of, just saying Midsummer Night's Dream is about fairies loses a lot of the darkness of the framing of that play. What is it? Uh, uh, Helena and Hermia get into an argument and uh, one is, is short, uh, they short shame, yeah. and then tall shame, you yeah. maypole, <laughs> and one is called an Ethiope because she has browner skin, which is not, uh, not something good. And you, know, you go word for word, that uh, argument, and of course the two men are ready to kill each other uh, over uh, a, a confusion. And so forth. Mm. The violence is right there, and of course, uh, what Hippolyta in the um, is the queen of the Amazons. So she's just been conquered by Theseus. You know, this is war and blood, bloodshed, and and uh, things like that. Uh, well, anyhow, I'm glad that we haven't gotten there. Now, I will tell you this: in Japan, there virtually is no literary education in what the Americans call secondary school. You you speak in forums and in the UK, but you would not do a literature class unless you're at a very special high school uh, until you got to college. So that's something we're working on. I'm working on with my student now, a history of Shakespearean education in Japan. And the difference between, you know, a lot of students show up in my class because Shakespeare, I don't think I could say it's iconic. We're writing about this where, you know, the force of the Western, you know, mm. Western canon, 
the largely male Western canon. I think all of that is sort of dissipated to Shakespeare being basically a brand. And my university, you've been to, and we're in the middle of brand Tokyo. And so a lot of students show up and then they, they kind of disappear after the first class when they know that they have to do some work. But um, uh, that's, that's kind of a challenge. And I think in your case, a reverse challenge is you're receiving students who have been taught this stuff all the way through and have certain expectations, which in your training, you might be trying to shake them out of a bit, depending on what teachers they had and what high schools they went to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things that comes up a lot in the in the UK in universities in teaching Shakespeare is a is actually really sad in some ways that this is the case, but an idea of unlearning. So getting students to forget maybe some of the more bite-sized ways of thinking about um, Shakespeare that they've been given at school because of the need for them to pass high stakes tests in there um, i'm trying to think really maybe when you're about 14 and then again about maybe 16 17 years old that kind of thing in the uk yeah. and it yeah to maybe reduce some of that uh, reductive kind of snapshot thinking about the plays or about the poems and to encourage them to come with a fresh eye encourage them to connect it to um, things that are happening in the year that they're studying this particular play even. Um, so I think that's one of the things we have to try and do a little, um, yeah. at least here. The other thing I suppose is that, um, I mean, my classes, even in the 10 years that I've been at York, are increasingly a mix of international and um, UK or EU um, students. And so actually that's maybe the greatest challenge of all is to teach some students who've had increasing amounts of Shakespeare. So the UK government, mm, certainly for the students that would be coming to class now, has mandated like four Shakespeare plays. Um, and actually sometimes that's just transpired to the same couple of Shakespeare plays taught multiple times. So you get students who are somewhat knowledgeable about Shakespeare, but also jaded and bored of Shakespeare and kind of wondering why they have to keep doing this. And you've got that alongside students who may have very little knowledge of Shakespeare other than maybe a couple of popular films or uh, maybe references in popular culture and don't know very much in terms of things like iambic pentameter you mentioned before. Or for example, a student recently was asking me, well, why is this text spaced out on the page like it is? Why are there so many gaps on the page? This isn't like a, a novel that I would pick up. Mm -hmm. I was saying, I don't know very much about drama. Can you point me in the direction of a couple of introductory texts mm -hmm. about how drama works? Mm -hmm. So we got into discussions about lineation and about verse as opposed to prose. And I think one of the really interesting challenges in that very mixed classroom is you've got to be able to speak to both of those students and to not kind of assume too much, but also to find ways to stretch your students that have been doing Shakespeare day in, day out at, um, at school. That's an interesting word, stretch, to, to stretch it out, to take it out of a kind of codified, <clears throat> um, highly institutionalized testing system that is nationalized and that people, you know, do or die 
mm-hmm. these situations that people have to go through when they're quite young. And uh, it's not quite that way in the States. It is very much that way in Japan, very similar to, um, and uh, it, it, that's, that's a challenge. That really is a challenge to move people from the, uh, I can't tell this joke. No, you know, no jokes that come to mind are appropriate for a general audience, but um, there's, uh, there's an old joke about the car Jaguar, right? When it, I love Jaguar. I do too. I used I used to, I had an old, well, we could talk about that. Oh yeah. Well, I had a, a 77 Jag with that, you know, the bonnet that, that curves with that. Yep. 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 There was a, it was delightful that I got for some 7,000 American dollars and it broke down every other week, but it was when it ran, it was such a joy. But anyway, the newer ones were very expensive and we're talking about, uh, people, uh, how much we loved the car, but how much we disliked the owner. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the people who drove Jaguars were such uh, jerks. They were usually these men who were kind of, you know, in these professions who thought a little bit more than of themselves and perhaps was necessary. But uh, in Shakespeare, there is Shakespeare, and then there's the reception of Shakespeare, the image of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a list of things because I'm doing several, you know, I'm doing a series here and I don't want to repeat myself. But I did take a friend out to play golf a few years back with a couple of my friends from a local university. And he was my friend who was not a professor was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to play golf with three English professors. <laughs> uh, we got there and we played a little round and, and got off. He goes, those guys were really normal. They were like normal people. <laughs> I said, yeah. And that's one of the things that's provoked me into doing this is to, so people can see that we're not, uh, we're, we're not, <laughs> we're not the way people think we, we're not the Jaguar drivers. Right. Uh, you know, we're not the jerks. We're not the smug people. Uh, we've in many cases had to struggle to get into the jobs that we've had. We're very fortunate to be where we are uh, and very happy with it. Uh, and to, and it, a lot of our effort in teaching is to try to remove Shakespeare from that long history of uh, being uh, this class, a kind of class attachment uh, that really is is very unfair to Shakespeare and unfair to people who could otherwise enjoy. I think many people have figured it out, but that seems to be kind of upfront in the torch that we're carrying uh, to, to, as you, what did you say? Just stretch it, stretch it. Into, <laughs> yeah. Because there's, there's something in there for everybody. It was written. Most of these things you know, were written to be what Midsummer Night's Dream could be played at court but you could run it right through the theaters. And I think they, I can show that they did uh, Mm. before they played it at court, rehearse it, get some audience response and then play it for the queen and her, her friends. Yeah. Well, Andy Murphy has got this really interesting book called working class Shakespeare's and it is, well, it makes, it's interesting. We're talking about being professors and trying to make it accessible. His thesis is actually that at least in the UK, working class people will tend to have like complete works of Shakespeare on their bookshelf and they would read it and, uh, you know, like kind of of an evening sit by the big fire and with the candlelight and, and kind of be interested in it. And it was kind of in and of itself popular. 
And he kind of locates a turn away from that with subject English growing in schools and kind of the early chairs of, sorry, professors of English um, emerging in, say, Oxford and Cambridge in the late 1800s. And that, sadly, that had this effect of people going, oh, this is something you have to study, like physics or like chemistry or like maths. This isn't something you can pick up for yourself and you won't be able to access the meaning of it for yourself. And this, it's, it's so sad to me that this growth of subject English, which is obviously my very favorite subject that I, I it's been my favorite subject since I was, I don't know, probably since I started studying anything at primary school and definitely all the way through high school, that that may have made people feel, oh, I can't do this. I'm, I'm not an English major. I'm not an English specialist. Yeah. I've been not touch this. Yeah. Yeah. You're not one of those people on that side of the classroom or, you know, in that group in, in the, um, when you break from classes, uh, <clears throat> people have little groups of friends and I'm not part of that coffee club. I'm part of another. Uh, well, I mean, there's a famous example of William Hazlitt in the early 19th century in the Surrey lectures and giving lectures to working class people who after work, uh, coal miners, after work would go here and to talk about Shakespeare and or Edward Dowden speaking at Trinity College uh, Dublin yes. and people lining up down the streets and holding each other up trying to hear from inside the window and tell uh, it was very public and very, uh, the, the origin was in the mechanics schools yeah. and yeah. Where, you know, the, the Oxford and Cambridge didn't want anything to do with Shakespeare. You can just read that stuff. We do Latin. You know, what is it? The, the old entrance exam to Oxford was, what's the joke? Who, who dragged whom around what city how many times? And if you can answer that question, you got it right, something like that. But, the, you know, it was a class distinction, of course, the public schools in English, yeah. in England, uh, which would be private in the United States. But uh, that's, you were taught the, that, and there was a resistance to teaching that, wasn't there? Mm. And I think I uh, can determine that Shakespeare was taught at University of Tokyo and at Harvard before Shakespeare was taught at Oxford or Cambridge because that, uh, the reception. But then yeah. it became, then it became uh, a class thing. I mean, you, how many people went to college in 1910? You know, so... Yeah. You go to Harvard, you study under Henry Hudson Shakespeare, wonderful teacher. I've read his work. He would have been a fabulous guy to, to learn from. But then it becomes a connection. You know who dragged whom in Shakespeare. Yeah, and not just class. I mean, also that thing about um, it being a suitable subject for, yeah, mechanics. It's kind of nice to teach them to have basic literacy through doing some Shakespeare after they've finished their shift down the coal mine. And also women, that it was suitable for women because they maybe hadn't learned Latin unless you were, you know, extremely well off and had quite a maybe liberal father who would allow you to have a tutor in your country house. So the idea that it's suitable for women and also suitable for, um, there are certainly a lot of books about how it comes into English language teaching because it's considered, well, you know, you're not going to start people off on, on Latin or Greek, you know, or even maybe, I don't know, metamorphoses. Oh, my um, email is just untimely popped up there. I'm going to close that down. Um, 
yeah, that it's suitable for getting people into language learning and that it's suitable for a sort of um, maybe an assimilatory purpose of kind of assimilating folk to particular ways of thinking or particular ideas or particular character types that you might find elsewhere in literature. So it, it ends up being kind of this thing that you can teach to anyone who is other in any way, if you're basically not a young, white, wealthy man at Oxbridge, Shakespeare's for you, which is in some ways kind of cool now. I think you could I'm kind cool. of reappropriate that yeah. and be like, how limited were they to not want to engage with Shakespeare and how, how great for, for us that we got Shakespeare. Yeah, now that brings us to the, the big question for everybody is turning points. Turning points, and you sort of suggest you pretty much were, you, you, you were already there, that maybe, the, but that is a risk to, to go into this in, you know, with so much talk. Lately, there's been a lot of talk about STEM or nothing else, right? The STEM yeah. fields, but that's been the way all through my life. You know, you come home from college and Uncle Billy, a real Uncle Billy said, well, what are you studying in college? And I'll say, well, I'm studying Shakespeare. What kind of job do you want to do with that? You know, uh, in, from the American South, right? But I think everybody's experienced this. You really do have to turn against a certain, certain tide. So tell mm. us about that. What? Well, that's a good one, because I have got a tide that I had to turn against. Um, so, I mean, I was always interested in reading um, literature, and I did read some Shakespeare, but it's, you know, I also enjoyed many other things equally, sometimes more, I would say. Um, I used to do funny little things like I would sit on my own. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I think I was doing dramaturgy. I would, like, mark up my complete works with... Um, kind of bits that I would use in a cut down version of Midsummer Night's Dream. I would take this little chalk crayon thing that I had and kind of, I was never doing it. I was never staging it, but I was just like, if I was going to stage this, we'd keep this bit and lose this bit. And I'd swap this line to somebody else. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had Wonderful. a lot of fun. What, what, age, <laughs> what age is young Sarah right now? Oh, um, I think maybe about 11 or 12. Something wow. Like that. Wow, you were one of those at 11 or 12. Uh, you know, that's a good age, though. That's a good age. There's an opening in there, in my memory, where that sort of closed off when puberty hit, in my case, uh, because then you have to worry about social things and being nervous mm. about, the, you know, the way your body's changing and that sort of thing. But there was this clarity in those, in those years where it seemed that anything was possible. And it seems like you, you were a fairly gifted child thinking about how you might change something and stage something uh, yeah. that way. I mean, yeah, I didn't go to the theatre heaps. I'm not entirely sure how I came up with this. I don't know, maybe I just have an innate enjoyment of controlling a situation. And I was like, let's imagine that I'm in control of this uh, kind of group of players. I think it also helped that, I mean, we've talked about gender a bit and I um, only went to single sex education till I was, till university really. Um, I, there were some boys at primary school at various stage, maybe up till about age 11 in the UK, that kind of thing. But um, I think that helped a lot because you had female teachers who were, had chemistry doctorates and there 
it was hard to see an idea that women couldn't do things when the people teaching you were all women who had done things and you had um, heads of school, you have principals who are fantastic women um, with MBAs and everything else. So that was very liberating, um, I would say. Liberating, and yes. And, and all, it's a liberating experience to be. And I've heard that from uh, African-American or uh, uh, black friends of mine who uh, African-American in America who have gone to historically black uh, colleges, uh, so uh, HBCs, which were out there for the wrong reasons, the Jim Crow reasons. Well, we'll give you a college yeah. education, but you got to go to your college. But they've, they've continued and in many cases strive because of, I, I think that's what you're talking about, a sense of we are on campus and, and gaining a, a good foundation identity foundation uh, outside of the mixed world that that be more adaptable would you say yeah definitely I think it's it's that thing about I just um, I'm probably quite late to partly because you don't you're not so self-conscious of your you are self-conscious of your body but not necessarily in relation to the opposite sex you might be kind of worried like Oh, I've got some spots today. I'm going to clean those up before I go into class. Or but you're not kind of worried that I have spots there for that makes me less of a person or less desirable mm -hmm. or those sorts of things. So I think it was helpful in that way. And also just that you, the women around you were the role models and it never occurred to me that women might not be able to do something because women at my school had almost all the roles there were maybe a couple of stem subjects like it at first for example where we had like male teachers um but it kind of just didn't enter my head just because of the environment you're in that that there might be a glass ceiling or something like that yeah so well you started uh, now i i think we talked about this when you were in tokyo you started you were born in uk and i think it's your during your adolescent years, you were uh, in, maybe your family moved to Australia, and so and Adelaide, right? Is that yeah? And so I don't want to get too personal if you don't want to, but I think you were pretty freely talking about this. So uh, in Adelaide, which I I view as this kind of happy uh, town that you know, good economy, a lot of really nice people, mm -hmm. uh, and nice places to go, and nice houses. That's how I see Adelaide, sort of a a bit of a, a, a dreamy world, like the American Midwest may have been at one point. We're seeing so many horrible images from the American Midwest recently, but um, the, that, that's where you went to high school. And uh, you, did, did you do the like the A and O level type uh, testing there too? Was it modeled on the UK or? I wonder if we're a bit closer to the US in Australia, um, at least when I was there, because as this has now changed and they do now have a, a federal or a national education system. But when I arrived, you know, a similar thing, geographic distances, you have states, I think five states and two territories. Um, hopefully I'm getting this right, otherwise I might get my Australian citizenship revoked. Um, but they were in charge of their own education and you had, um, so I have a qualification that's a South Australian qualification for my year 12 year 13 so when I was 17 18 um, and the states each determined that because 
you know, when these educational certificates evolved, it would have been so difficult to exchange who was doing what between the states and to exchange resources and materials. Right, right. Um, and to even do the, the processes of certification and marking, you know, you're not able to just shoot an email off to Canberra about um, scaling the marks, something like that. So, um, so we actually... I also think are more similar to the American tradition in Australia in that you had a broader range of subjects at year 12 than British people. Usually British people narrow down to about three subjects by the time they're finishing school. We had to take five subjects in our final year. So that did allow me to keep some of that um, broader, that more liberal education. So I took economics and biology alongside yeah. English and French and history. And that carries through into university education as well. I mean, it may be changing now in Australia. It's almost 20 years since I finished my school education. But um, my degree was not an English degree as it would be if I studied in the UK. I would have read medieval and renaissance and 18th century and 19th century and modern literature but in australia i was doing some law subjects i was doing jurisprudence i was doing politics alongside um english and french and history again i somehow kept very close to my school subjects when i went through university and now i'm kind of kicking myself and saying why didn't you do anthropology why didn't you do classics you oh. could have really expanded um well there can't be four five six sarahs <laughs> no. I, I have a i have a younger brother who specialized in accounting and he was he was the best in the whole world at everything he went to law school and it's made you know he very rightfully been extremely good in his job and has done extremely well and he knows a lot about the stocks. And I remember 20 years ago that I, uh, we were talking and having a beer. We're home for Christmas or something. And I said, listen, tell me something about the stock market. I don't know. He said, that's boring. I want to talk about Ernest Hemingway. I just read a Hemingway. Now, and he, he felt like he should have done more. And, you know, he was sort of jealous of me. <laughs> I said, right now I'm struggling to keep and find a job, you know, at the same time and uh, no, nothing to be jealous of. I think we all feel that way a little bit. Like there's something that we, you know, in, in another life, perhaps that we could have done. Absolutely. And it, well, yeah, I mean, I think mine would have had to involve reading a literature at some point, but I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned those kind of economic concerns that start creeping in and the English that I was doing at university, I did narrow down at first. I kind of did medieval, early modern or Renaissance and um, Victorian women's writing largely. Yeah. And then and I love the medieval and I nearly became a medievalist. There's yeah. a fantastic um, professor at Adelaide, Tom Burton, who just made things like semantic change so fun. And he taught us things like Sidrak and Bacchus. I can't imagine putting Sidrak and Bacchus on a yeah. university curriculum yeah. really at the moment. It's, it's so specific and you need to do so much work in terms of the language. It's, yeah. you know, I'm sure that many of the students watching this think Shakespeare sounds like some kind of Martian language, some yeah. thing from another planet, medieval English. And I know you've got like folks like Ben Crystal involved as well, who are such experts on when, you know, things 
change and vowel shifts and all those sorts of things. But it fascinated me. And I, I wanted to work on things like early modern elegy for a long time, female elegy um, yes. Yes. was something I wrote on in my third year. And then I was trying to come back to the UK to do a master's and I was trying to get funding to do it. And I very quickly discovered that people don't particularly want to give you funding, at least in Australia as well, where there's partly a bias towards STEM subjects that's been actually much longer held than perhaps what's emerging in the UK now. And it could be related to engineering in Australia and mining and those sorts of things. Um, but uh, there was kind of pressure to like, well, what are you going to do that's going to change people's lives or how is that going to be useful? It's that question about application, right? That you get, how is this useful? How will this help anyone? And that's where I started to develop a specialism in Shakespearean education, because if you can say things like, well, so many children across the world, so many young people at universities have to study Shakespeare what are the best ways we can do that? Or what are the resources for them to study Shakespeare? And people start to say, oh, you can have money for that. You want to improve their education. Yes, education, the big E. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it could be STEM hyphen E. If you just can't do any of these other things, well, we do have this enormous amount of national funding and initiatives and this and that. We're trying to get everybody educated in general. So that was a very good move. That was very good. Um, and I, I slipped into education at certain points, basically for survival, but also because I was very interested in the history of education, but also medieval. I, I, uh, I can name three guys who taught me uh, medieval and they were s superb. All of them were so engaging in class. And right now in my faculty, unfortunately, we just, we don't have a medievalist uh, and uh, she retired. And so um, I'm, I'm hoping before I retire that we can maybe get one. Uh, mm. it's, it's so engaging, but it's so challenging even for native speakers that uh, it's hard. Uh, yeah. I mean, something like Gawain and the Green Knight, we studied at university and I loved it. But then actually I equally love, I think equally, things like Simon Armitage rewriting that in an English that is, it's probably still pretty challenging, especially if you're just coming to English as a language and particularly to literary English. And he does because he's from, I think, up north, from Yorkshire, somewhere like that. It's full of, it kind of keeps a flavor of dialect, but... I do love looking at things like Seamus Heaney rewriting um, Beowulf as well. Maybe those are the ways to access it. You can then, maybe that then encourages you to dip into the original and to, to do battle with all of that language. But uh, yeah, they're well, ringing stories. You know, if you like Game of Thrones, like. Yep, I was thinking Game of Thrones, yeah. You know, uh, talking about stretching, if you go for those sub, those, those, uh, what deep structural uh, elements of medieval literature, mm -hmm. you got yourself a hit. And I'm sure Tolkien, come on, you know, this, this is, he was, he was such a linguist, such a uh, uh, polyglot, 
that you know you you go into that deep structure you do get into the things that are just uh what eternally entertaining and meaningful at the same yeah. time yeah and those big battles of good versus evil are so much what you know some of those poems some of those early writings are about and they play out of course in you know things like harry potter too not just uh you know we can argue that maybe Tolkien does it miles better linguistically, but those big kind of uh, struggles. And actually one of my students um, wrote on Game of Thrones, I, I teach a module on drama and education, and she took the first text that we studied that I open the module with is Tis Pity, um, John Ford, and people will talk about it as a kind of dark rewriting of Romeo and Juliet taking Shakespeare's themes of forbidden love between young adolescents and it turns out that there's an incestuous sibling relationship there but yeah. she paired that with Game of Thrones and wrote a terrific yeah. essay works. about it works uh who is it Lisa Hopkins I believe has written a bit on that and um uh, I have a student. It's amazing how much uh, overlap we have going. I have a student who walked in, started this term. Unfortunately, she couldn't. We couldn't meet face to face, and she says, "I just finished. I want to do John Ford. Tis pity." And uh, I said, "Well, you know, your um, your boomer professor is going to have to go back thirty years and and reread that." And I just finished it, and it is, fa and she's going to work on marriage and the law and law at that time and has worked up some very she's seen some and it's gotten me thinking about it what women broke the law right and when you look at the law of course you have two laws you have c of e church of england and the reformed church and you have the council at trent which would be over uh verona in Romeo and Juliet, any Italian-based place, so you have that confusion, and then you have audience reception. So Romeo and Juliet, it turns out, they get married. So Romeo and Juliet, it turns out, they get married. So when they consummate the, it's all legal, except there were that I can I can see no witnesses, and you had to have witnesses. You had to have two, according to the Catholic Church and the Reformed Church of England. There's, there's no one to witness it. So she may have broken the law. And, the, and that's, that's just as bad as the adultery in Tis Pity. It is adultery. Now it's incest, but uh, so you can add that. But, uh, and she breaks the law, of course, when she murders, when she commits suicide, you can't kill yourself. Uh, that's homicide. Uh, so Juliet's a lawbreaker, it turns out. And Ford, I think, you know, when you look at it that way, uh, we have sympathy for what Annabella in that play for some reason. Uh, and it is tis pity. It's, it's tis pity that she falls in love with someone she can't fall in love with. But he does seem to be break. So you start going through Shakespearean characters. I'll try to finish this very quickly. And you look at what Desdemona. All right. Guess what? Eloping is not against the law. You can go against the will of your father. And there is early feminism that takes a couple of centuries to begin to, because there's no democracy. Mm. Uh, but there is that, that great shift from medieval to early modern where, you know, they, there's sort of an, 
even among a largely male audience, sympathy for the woman to marry someone she loves rather than the person her father tells her. Of course, men mm. were to, men were also told who to marry, but uh, of course, men had freedom to run around much more than, of course, women who would be just horrible, horrible treatment. Desdemona doesn't, doesn't break the law. <laughs> she doesn't kill herself. She doesn't do anything. <laughs> and you mentioned Amelia, though. She's well. You mentioned Othello, and Amelia is one of my favorite characters oh, when she stands there at the end and i'm not sure this totally connects to rule breaking although i can see that had i don't want to put too many plot spoilers in there but had things not panned out the way they do i feel like she's the kind of woman that you know that thing about women not being able to testify against husbands and material like that she is there saying Yes, it's giving testimony. You've done this, and I'm yeah. declaring this, and yeah. this is this is how yeah. it happened. It did not happen in this way. It wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been winding everybody up and yeah. interfering. And actually, um, you, I know one of the things that you're interested in is like what digital resources are available. And there's a recent Women in Shakespeare podcast run by Dr. Varsha Panjwani. He works for NYU in London. And she's recently had Janet Sussman talking about how much she loves that character, Amelia, how much she enjoyed playing Amelia. And just to recommend that any of your students that are interested in, in feminist to. Shakespeare's yes. It's free to air, I think, if you just take your favorite search engine and put in Women in Shakespeare podcast, your, your students will find it. We'll catch it. And of course, we're recording so we can pick it up. And I have uh, four, five students. We, we, did, uh, we did Othello. And uh, I, I, looking back, I didn't focus enough on Emilia. Uh, I was so, I, I was so, I, I think my students were more interested in race because this is it's such mm -hmm. a play about race and racial. And of course, we were going through some of the tensions that were coming out in the States at that time. So maybe all of us subconsciously. And Amelia, there's a preamble to her testimony against her husband. She is uh, jaded about this whole what you know they 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 eat us like you know a meal mm. and they tire of us and you know the abuse mm. and she has of course this horrible husband she, she didn't marry very well at all um how about uh hermia that we were looking at hermia she's breaking athens law but she's not breaking english law church of england and eloping that could spending the night in the forest for someone you're not that could get you into trouble that could get you into bridewell hospital right um, and taken around on a cart and people throwing things at you that sort of thing mm. Mm, so that's that's marginal well i love how shakespeare does that though how he uses those you know like you're uh, he uses these different settings. And I was thinking, actually, we talked about the Tempest a bit when I was just kind of preparing to teach this to my students and doing the online stuff recently. Yeah, I'm thinking, are Milanese conventions supposed to be applying here? Italian conventions? Are we supposed to be thinking of these characters as... It was, it was the question about learning me your language. And I'm thinking, okay, we're working in English. 
you know, on the stage, English is the language that Caliban is being taught, but these are Italian characters and, and no one kind of mentions this necessarily when they're talking about it, when we're teaching it. And I started to really, you know, and then you probably got Latin being spoken at court, perhaps in preference to the vernacular Italian. So I just love what Shakespeare's doing there. And I think often it is to get around various laws. And for example, when you situate contests between various royal figures or noble figures, and just be like, I'm just going to take the sting out of this and not locate it in the UK and not mention specific titles or specific. I'll, I'll put it there and I can get away with it. And this That's will right. pass. Well, we talked about censorship. And of course, Shakespeare's plays are subject to approval and censorship to yeah. be performed. So, yeah. <laughs> and he does tend to avoid. Uh, uh, not top. He does a lot of topical, but not in not in the time, not in London in that time. And that got. Mm -hmm. You look at the list of playwrights who spent some time in jail, and uh, Johnson. Uh, I think Marston did. Uh, I th there's a list that I have written down somewhere, uh, and Shakespeare. There's no record that he did because it's in a different time. So the only time I can, you know. There is, uh, there are books about the drama of the city where he's being directly referential. Those back to Romeo and Juliet, those two characters at the beginning, they're not Italian. Those are English uh, wannabe, what, wannabe gallants. You know, they're not quite there. They are fops. They are the worst kind of uh, ill-bred wannabes in the world. And it's something out of, um, I don't know, something out of a, uh, I'm thinking of Oasis, the band, you know, something. Uh, oh, like, like Noel and Liam Gallagher. Yeah. Like yeah. Those guys. yeah. The, and, uh, and the, just having a spat right there, 40,000 people and they don't give a damn. They're just going to be who they are. And, um, you know, and, uh, you know, open up a beer, light up a cigarette, pout on stage, that sort of thing. And uh, it's so directly going. It's so directly street of London, but yeah. you're in Verona, and we know how those Italian guys are. They're all, uh, you know, passion and so forth. So uh, he does that very cleverly. And Tempest, I think, is endless, isn't it? It's endless how referential that play is. Uh, yeah. It's, it's why I enjoy teaching it so much in a way. And it also gets picked up in, there are some, I mean, some of the, I'm sorry to come back to the vampire writings, but, no, but that's do. one of the things I've been writing is by an American author, Laurie Handeland, or been reading is by Laurie Handeland. And she, she manages to combine vampires, zombies, which obviously has some kind of connection to the kind of colonialism in the play, because we think about zombies coming from like West Indian lore or Haitian kind of mm. folklore, those sorts of figures. And it mashes all of these things up into what is essentially a kind of bodice ripper romance. It's kind of a Mills and Boone, but with, um, sorry, this is probably too specific UK. I'm, I don't know if there are like US equivalents, but basically a, a kind of romance erotic novel for like young, primarily aimed at young women. 
but it's drawing on the tempest and it's drawing on issues around colonialism and and you know the setting free of Ariel and those sorts of things how incredible like this is just meant to be something people pick up at a train station and you know read and chuck away at the end of the journey but but it does so by drawing on all of that um early modern literature yeah and there's a manga element in there too is from what you're describing and is there the boys love uh theme in manga which is something i'm not an expert on i've just read an article uh but it's big in my of course, my students are very up on it, but that sort of thing, young adult, uh, popular culture that uh, becomes, there is a bit, because you know, there's, there's a lot of competition out there. You can't just sit down and write a vampire story and now and say, okay, we got a scary person and a bunch of people being scared and have that go. It has to, uh, there, there are all kinds of uh, twist in the genre that you have to be there's an art is i guess where i'm going mm. to and that's what you're seeing now where would you where's the connection between vampire and anything shakespearean <laughs> that's a great question well i think glennis byron beat me to it she did a superb reading of the vampiric language in romeo and juliet which i'd never Wow. I never noticed before as a as a young person going to see it or even teaching it these things about gaping moors, so huge mouths that consume you, and Romeo locking himself when his father comments, all he does now he's moping around Rosalind is, you know, shut himself up. He makes himself an artificial knight. There is so much language, gothic language going on in that play. And I know we have a lot of friends uh, who enjoy looking at gothic spaces, all those sorts of things. Um, I think some of that forbidden love, right, as well. One of the reasons maybe we create vampires, particularly mm. in, you know, 19th century fiction, mm. is the thrill of forbidden love. And mm. maybe the thrill of just kind of breaking what your father says or a breaking church law, maybe that wasn't a strong enough thrill in the 19th century anymore. And thrills have to become something that involves this more physically deviant figure of the vampire and immortals and all those sorts of things. So I kind of see it as a continuity, but it's just like, uh, you know, let's take some of the things Shakespeare was doing, but we need to ramp them up and make them well, a little it. more that's, forbidden. That's it. I think that's what Ford did uh, after yeah. Shakespeare. He couldn't put on, a, you know, Romeo and Juliet. Your mother and father don't want you to make, no, it's got to be something more. And you just see that going all the way up into the Gothic, you know what, Victorian or early 19th century. Yeah, and, you've got to escalate it through adaptation. I think, you know, that, that happens with every, with literature, with film. And I mean, some of the work I was doing over summer is about um, a kind of shift from the Capulet tomb. So Juliet being imprisoned in the Capulet tomb, which you arguably oh. self imprisoned by drugging herself and getting put in there as part of a plan to be able to escape with Romeo. But actually a lot of these modern retellings I noticed focus less on her physical imprisonment in that space and more in a sense of imprisonment in her own body. So they kind of did the turn to the body that was popular in nineties feminism and they will have Juliets who are experiencing something much closer to like locked in syndrome. So it picks up on maybe that's one of our current fears in the 
world we're in, we know a lot more about medical states. We know a lot more about what happens to people in permanent vegetative state. And they take that. And that's the new fear. The new fear is not that your dad says no. The new fear is not that your dad puts you indirectly in a vault or leads to you being in a vault. It's like, what if, although I'm supposed to be able to have all these roles in society and pick whom I want, what if my body fails me and I'm stuck in there? Yeah. Um, and that, in these newer reworkings of Romeo and Juliet for young women, becomes the source of fear. So my body, its workings, its appearance, which yeah. connects into obviously lots of uh, concern around women's bodies and how they present themselves and women's figures and weight and size and all those sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. And this, this literature for young people today is just tapping into all of that but through Shakespeare. So it's a, it's a sort of re, uh, it's a little bit retro. If we're going back to the nineties and I'm, I'm pretty familiar with that area <laughs> because I'm a boomer, but anyhow, the, uh, the mortal coil, you know, it's all through Shakespeare and uh, you know, it might be men talking about their bodies, but the, uh, the, the notion of, of being with, held within uh, and uh, the idea of imprisonment being so eminent. I mean, it's so, it's so much right there. Uh, the the possibility if you were a common woman, um, which most everybody was, you know, the chances are if we were born, what are the chances that we would be commoners, right? And you could just be taken and and thrown into prison, basically, a hospital for for bad rumor, for fake news, um, could be enough, and it basically an entire society trying to make sure that your body didn't go into various places, right? Just a complete yes. order, a sense of control. Um, that, yeah. yeah. There's a lot in these novels, actually, you mentioned the body and the sense of control and that your body shouldn't go into certain places. And we've been talking about Tis Pity where we have a, a young woman who's pregnant by her own brother. And of course it's outside of wedlock because that was never going to happen. Um, and in a lot of these novels, they pick up on maybe young women's fears today of, of pregnancy and the changes pregnancy will uh, kind of produce on your body. And you've got some monstrous stuff in, we mentioned Stephanie Mayer's Twilight before, about the supernatural fetus that's almost eating her up from the inside. Yeah. And this is somehow within the framework of a Romeo and Juliet love story. Like, yeah. <laughs> I see it. I see it. Um, well, what I think it was going to do is sort of uh, finish up, but I wanted to ask you, because I saw this, there's been a lot of controversy, and it's a Shakespearean related, it's uh, part of the stretch, the uh, Harry Potter thing, the, uh, uh, and where are we with that? So bring us up to date on... Okay, so thinking basically about the argument with how, how I guess fans of Harry Potter are feeling, people who are perhaps my age, maybe a little bit younger, who really invested themselves in those novels. And we've been talking about liberating, right? This idea that they were liberated by like, it's cool to be the geek, it's cool to be the outsider, it's cool to be the brainy girl like Hermione. And suddenly you have J.K. Rowling turning around and... I would say, I don't think I'm speaking too strongly here, kind of advocating a, a transphobic position or at least against transphobic women. Um, 
and problematizing what counts as a female body, very policing of who can be a female, what female attributes are, being quite essentialist, and the impact that that stance has for a group of people who who kind of found themselves in Harry Potter and, and found a, a, a Potterverse that was hospitable, that was welcoming to outsiders. And I think who now feel very threatened by her othering people and saying, well, you're not women. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, at least in the UK, and I know I have a kind of group of friends who are very, uh, well, tend to be literature professors or literature students, but this has been making, I would say, kind of, if you can call Facebook headline news, it's been appearing on my feed fairly regularly for the last three months now, I would say. I don't know how but much. On mine, on mine, too, and I'm, I'm, I'm boomer, it's, but it's showing up. Uh, and uh, and it's uh, it, it, well, it, basically, it just sort of the whole thing sort of makes me sad because I had, you know, the the story, the narrative of Rowling's life is is heroic. Mm. Uh, the um, the I, I I did go to her website and she did write, you know, of course, a, a very articulate uh, position statement basically on this. Uh, but of course, you know what comes up is she was uh, she was the victim of domestic violence. She had to she was uh, a single mother in every way, and faced uh, abject poverty. If if I'm right, uh, and you know bootstraps her way out of this and becomes a great success, and and uh, and someone who is so admirable on so many fronts, uh, and not, not the least bit um, up until we you know the points that you're talking about. Uh, just extraordinarily regular old person, you know, the kind of person you, you just feel you could, you could be friends with, you know, not full of herself Uh, and uh, bringing with, you know, sort of like Henry V, you know, having a knowledge of where, of the other side, how can you be a great King when you know the people, right? You know, know your subjects and she knows her subjects, but then uh, she's fallen out with the, uh, movement uh, and uh, recently my uh, colleague in, in let's say past three or four years has made the transition and she uh, is next door to me and we've been friends for for years so I am pretty we during the past age we went out to lunch at least once a week and I would basically uh, it was an instructional moment for me like where where are we what's going on here and uh, it's, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think what you say, everything about her Rowling's difficult background, I think that almost makes it worse. Do you know what I mean? That it disappoints people more that they go as someone who was oppressed as someone who was made to feel worthless, you know, by your abusive partner or or by society when, you know, she was raising kids in an era when we had a lot of anti-single mother kind of nasty slurs going around. Um, You know, having been put in that position of being kind of, if not literally spat on, you know, getting a lot of abuse, getting a lot of like, we don't want to associate with you. How do you then 
come to a position where you're putting other people in a similar situation where you are excluding other people or making them feel less than I think that's really confusing for people. I think for literary professors, it poses some really interesting questions around death of the author. So I have a friend and colleague who is adamant, you just divorce J.K. Rowling from her works. You do oh. the role of arts, death of the author stuff. Oh. And that's how you cope with it. And I'm not sure that I can, but I'm more inclined to context anyway. I'm more inclined to say, well, who is the author? Where are they coming from? What are their biases? Well, I am really not at liberty to, I'm really not at liberty. I could talk about anything I want to, but it would just take too long. Uh, the, uh, there is, I do know this, and I'm not speaking for myself. I, I'm very lucky to have, be in a position where I get uh, news fresh off the press. I, I, and from someone who's also a, uh, an up and, not up and coming, a, a very well-known uh, linguist, and uh, semantics and so forth, uh, you know, so an expert in, in sensitivity and language and so forth. So, but there is a feeling among peers of mine that we are in a, we're walking through a cow pasture that is increased, increasingly populated by cows, and we increasingly have to watch where we step. Uh, that you can, you can say something that might maybe take an illiberal or phobic of, on some, any level, uh, just by, um, bringing up some word, what was it, uh, uh, Biden brought up the old word, oh, that's a bunch of malarkey, which is an old term for BS and so forth. He was made fun of for using malarkey. So not, but you're not, you're not really sure. Uh, I typically tend to use the word uh, guys, for instance, as the uh, gender neutral. And I was uh, called out by one of my dear old friends and say, no, you don't, you don't walk into a room and say, how are you gals doing if it's a mixed room or, you know, whatever. And I said, well, I don't know. And so I talked to my friend who, the linguist, and she says, nope, guys has changed. And it's a, it's a good gender neutral term because you have people who are in between uh, the binaries. And so it's working, you know, the word, every word changes, cool change to have a different meaning from, you know, and uh, many, many examples. So, so I don't know. I just stay away. I'm trying, I don't know if I use the word guys in this. And, um, and I, I typically will say, Hey man, to a woman. And I'm trying to, to stop doing that, but I'm not, I don't think I've offended anyone. The one that was years ago was girl. And I'm from the American South, and every woman from the age of birth to 98 was, okay, girl. You know, that's just, and it was, it was part of white uh, discourse and black discourse. It was just, and so I was, you know, I went into academe, and I said, okay, I'm not, anybody who's over eight, <laughs> you know, let's just, oh. let's just be safe. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so, you know, it takes a while for the public to make this transition. And I do feel, and this is a personal, I do feel that, you know, we get the announcement and I'm not in the same feed. I don't, and I'm in Japan. Uh, and suddenly I am stepping in it and don't realize I am. And there is a need maybe for there to be a, a, a transition and allowance to transition uh, like my good friend who didn't transition, uh, he, he just changed his name years ago. 
and he's still a he, but he changed his name. It took me a, a year or so to get used to calling him by his middle name rather than his first name. So that's what I would hope will come of this. That I think the best thing is just being able to talk about it, isn't it? It's being able to have discussions and being able, you know, if you feel comfortable talking and then other people feel comfortable questioning or saying, well, what about this? Because there is no consensus, I don't think, on, on most issues. You know, you can't assume that somebody prefers to be called hey guys or hey folks or hey gentle folk or there's maybe not a wrong and right answer I, I guess you know conversations are always a negotiation between yourself and the people you're talking to so it's always going to have to be dynamic isn't it you're always at least if you want to get on with people you're always kind of doing that thing of like sensing the room and sensing and, and kind of changing. And I mean, some of the things you've talked about are so, they're so regionally influenced as well, right? Because I've tried to say, because I'm a big hey guys person too, but I've had, I've tried to change it to hey folks. And then I'm thinking, do people think that I'm kind of appropriating an Americanness or because we don't, necessarily say hey folks how y'all doing like but I I kind of you know sometimes I'm like well that's quite useful and y'all I find quite useful and I I have like in person plural very useful yeah it's so good I love it but when I write it I feel people might you know kind of think she's kind of faking this American persona. She's already so mixed up she's got Australian and English all mashed together. (laughs) What's going on? But you know uh i i language should be playful and i guess that's going to be something that you come back to with other folks in your talk right that language it's playful and it should be joyous and and we should be able to experiment with it yeah and by the way i recently watched a podcast done by these uh journalists from rolling stone and uh, one of the guys and it was funny but he was making fun of how this one politician was using the word folks Oh yeah, and uh, not not in a uh, insensitive way, but just sort of making fun. And I'm going, oh come on, don't take that away from me because that was my sus- substitute, like you, for guys. And yes. so I think I'm going to hang on to folks. But in my experience, I don't know how. Uh, I, I do know in the UK that people, and and this is very Shakespearean. How you go from the highest level of formal, delicate, highly sensitive language, you know, arguments made in the most, let's, let's say, I, want, I don't want to say litigious, but highly formalized and highly de- delicate. I mean, one mistake could get you kicked out of court. That's the end of your life. You know, you spend all of this money on your dress, you're in, you're in debt to the tailor, and that's a joke, and you are trying to come up, you know, you're a Raleigh or a Bacon or someone trying to make their way up, and you, and one flaw in the way you express yourself, and you are out. You know, you are so out. And then it transitions into this, you know, foppish, brutal street language uh, in so many places that we could cite. Uh, and uh, so this is very interesting to me trying to teach this, you know, how you can go from one to the other. Tom, I think you have to do something on the fact that, you know, everyone's saying like, oh, cancel culture, all this cancel culture, it's so dangerous for white people to speak now or older people to speak now. You can kind of point them back and go, cancel culture existed in Shakespeare's time. 
and it existed to the extent that you get your head chopped off. So, <laughs> well, no, know, this this is nothing. This. Yeah, any of us who grew up in polite society, right? And I did. I, I was very country. We were very. We grew up very much in the country. You were in this. Uh, you were in Adelaide during your adolescence and so forth. But there were there were codes of conduct that were very strict. And uh, oh, I was going to go back to the UK. The accents there is a, uh, and this happens in the states to a degree. Uh, there's no way I survive in academe with the accent I grew up with. Okay, so, you know, being, uh, using sensitive uh, and proper language and in, in speaking about people who are transitioning or people who, who have transitioned, this is nothing new. It comes fast would be the only complaint. And sometimes I don't see it when it, when it, when it enters. Uh, but I've been doing this all my life. And you may have too in some certain ways that we, we change inflection and and how we speak uh depending upon uh well let's say in this broadcast i wouldn't go in i wouldn't drift into any dialect that i had when i was uh say 14 years old it would it would murder me it would be worse than being transphobic <laughs> because come on you know american american southern white male with an accent to boot? Oh my! Oh my! Uh, and uh, I, I don't think you probably have had because it, what I know from my British friends is there's a great love. It seems a sort of love affair with Australia and things Australian uh, that I've picked up on. But I might be a little wrong about that. I don't know. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think when I got to Australia, I was a bit picked on for my. Um, I don't know that it was my British accent so much as around in Adelaide, um, certain vowels are associated with like class, really class um, is a good example. Yeah. And they associated my vowels with being from Melbourne. And at the time, Adelaide and Melbourne had a great rivalry because Melbourne stole the Grand Prix from Adelaide is the Ooh. way that people put it. So. Okay. There was a little like, where are you from? And actually people were surprised when I said England because they thought I was just going to say interstate, I'm from Victoria, that kind of thing. When I came back to the UK, people said I, so I got an Australian accent of sorts. Um, I can tell it in some ways it, it sounds a bit transatlantic. So my turt sounds like a dirt sometimes. Mm. Like um, I'm trying to think of a good you know uh, example of that um like instead of vetted i might say vetted or something a little right. along those lines right so i feel my accent is pretty mixed up i'm lucky because i think in uk academia my generation has not had to stick to that thing of losing your accent or kind of hiding your accent behind yeah. something quite generic and received pronunciation and UK is getting better at that more generally. Our radio announcers, our television presenters. Oh, to the point that I can't understand <laughs> sometimes uh, because my history with BBC is when I started listening to BBC, it was all RP. And they became much more aware of you know, regional dialect and so forth. But in certain cases, there are people who speak with such an accent that I'm losing a percentage of what they're saying. Yep. I think that should make people feel more confident though, for example, your language learners, like, don't worry, don't worry if you're, well, obviously for class, you need to worry about getting your pronunciation bang on there. 
but if you're going to have a trace of your Japanese accent when you're speaking English, you know, don't worry about that. And, and people in Britain are getting used to hearing English spoken in so many different ways. Yeah. And, you know, English is a world language and there are so many ways of kind of making it your own, like Singaporean English, Singlish. Um, yeah. Hopefully it will encourage people to have a go, just have a go and, and be, don't, you know, feel bad about the way you do English. Everybody does English a little bit different. Well, and we can tie that to Shakespeare because you get that diversity. And I'm not sure there's anyone, because of the body of plays attributed. Now, of course, the recent research is showing much more collaboration than, than before. And I, I kind of like that because it sort of reduces the icon and, and turn, we're, we're in a community, aren't we? A community of playwrights who are taking a, a vulgar language the vulgar firm, not the Latin. They're taking a vernacular and lifting it up to this this great level on two different fronts. You know, the uh, the iambic pentameter front, but also the area of comic exchanges and sometimes very roughshod. Uh, but you, you're seeing that sort of diversity, and you're you're in a city that has had a lot of immigration. Uh, a lot of these plays were printed because of the you know the printers who came over from uh, Antwerp or wherever, uh, and who were aliens, I think they were, they were called at that mm -hmm. time. Uh, so uh, there is that lesson. Um, but anyway, I have kept you, I have probably kept you, you could have written a critical article and had another <laughs> publication or, or four or five more grants in this period of time, the, the rate that you work at, Sarah. I would like you to stay uh, for a moment afterwards, but uh, well, I, I think we, unless you have any closing remarks, I think we're almost through. No, thank you so much for having me on this series. That's the only closing remark I have. I'm, I feel like I'm among very eminent and wonderful company. So, yeah. <laughs> eminent, I don't know. Wonderful, I don't know. I have to ask my wife about that. She's, <laughs> I'm getting home a little bit late tonight for supper. Uh, oh, bless oh, no, I got some chocolate. I, I, I'm coming with gifts. Um, but uh, we are we're pretty strict about that in, in our household. Our kids are, are grown and and uh, and we have each other. Uh, so uh, I, I don't uh, usually work late. Although in Japan, whoo, people people work late. Uh, anyhow, uh, uh, thank you so much. The pleasure was all mine, and I'm sure all anyone who sees this uh, will will be uh, very happy to. Uh, have heard what you've had to say. And, and I'm so happy to have now a work sample because as I contact people, you know, I'm going to have several work samples here in the next couple of weeks. I can say, just look at this instead of trying to write out this because, because people aren't as relaxed as you are about open comedy. A, little, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of our friends in academia, a lot of very fine people kind of want to stick to the formal you know, presentation of their work and so forth. But uh, I'm hoping this will take a little bit of, uh, get a little bit of a momentum, have some legs, as they say. And uh, if it does, then it's, it's because of your uh, contribution here and your willingness to, to spend some time with us. Uh, it was my hope that we could have you in our studio. We have a nice studio. Which is, uh, and it was my hope that next year, I, you know, you would be here. We could get a team of our Shakespeare Association of Japan people and bring you in. And then I could do this. Uh, but uh, but the, tech, the technology has allowed us to do this in this way. So, again, thank you so much.
Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Thomas. Oh, I almost hit it.